And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. In 2005, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton wrote wrote Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Uh, And based on interviews with about 3,000 teens, they describe what they consider to be the common religious beliefs among uh, teenagers, and they called it moralistic therapeutic deism. The author summed up these beliefs as having five basic elements. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, the authors stated that a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously uh, connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, but has rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic the- uh, therapeutic deism, end quote. Now, sadly, I think that the authors are largely on target. Much of what goes under the banner of Christianity is moralistic in that it believes that good people will go to heaven, although often the standards of what is good doesn't line up with what the Bible says. It's therapeutic in that feeling good about yourself is the main reason to go to church and to believe in Jesus. He can help you have a better life. And it's deism in that you don't really need a savior uh, from sin because basically you're a good person. God is there when you need Him, but the rest of the time, just believe in yourself and pursue your own dreams. God, His glory, and the cross, they are not at the center of this belief system. Now, I hope that you can see just how far uh, moralistic therapeutic deism is from the gospel that Paul sets forth in Romans. After stating the theme of Romans, uh, which is, and he says he's not ashamed of the gospel, which actually reveals the righteousness of God, Paul shows that every person has sinned and is actually under God's condemnation. He then shows by, shows that by the death of his son, Jesus Christ, he satisfied God's righteous demand so that he can be both the one who justifies or the justifier, be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then Paul sets forth some of the blessings of being justified by faith in Christ. And then Paul reemphasizes why it is that we must be justified by faith. And that's because when Adam sinned, we all sinned as well. His sin was our sin. And the fact of universal death proves it. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, more than overcame the devastating effects of Adam's sin. Now, Adam's sin resulted in death for all who were in him. But Jesus Christ's obedience in going to the cross, that resulted in justification of life for all who were in Him. Well, Adam's sin was credited to all his descendants, but Christ's righteousness is credited to all who are his descendants through faith in Him. 
Now, Paul anticipates a question that anybody familiar with the Old Testament would have been thinking, why then was the law given? What is the purpose of the law? Didn't God give the law through Moses so that people could keep it and live? So in verses 20 and 21, Paul contrasts the law and its result with God's grace in Christ and its result. And he's saying that through the law, sin reigned in death, but through Christ, superabundant grace grace reigns in righteousness to eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for an opportunity to open your word. We admit our weakness, uh, Father, that we need you. We need your Holy Spirit now to speak this truth into our hearts to see what Paul is actually talking about here. So, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see this, Father, that you would more than just see it, that we would embrace it, and then upon that, live it, Father, to your honor, to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul's words there in 520, they would have been just utterly shocking to his Jewish readers. Paul says that the law came in so that transgression would increase. Now, the average Jew would have thought that the law came in to restrain sin, not to cause it to increase. Now, we'll consider in just a moment what Paul meant by this statement, but for now, just note that most Jews, they would do a double take when and say, did I read that correctly? Paul's assertion definitely would have gotten their attention. A couple of main points here. Number one, outside of Christ, the law causes sin to increase and to reign in death. There are several things to consider here. A, the law does not restrain sin at the heart level. There is a sense in which both civil law and God's law restrain, restrain sin externally. Speed limits cause us to slow down, especially when we see a police car. Laws against theft and murder and other things, they may restrain people who would otherwise would have done those things. But the law cannot restrain the evil desires of the fallen heart. I still want to speed, right? Uh, Greed makes me want to steal, I'm being hypothetical here, I don't, I don't think about stealing, but you know what I'm saying. The law cannot bring any sinful heart into willing submission. Jesus hit the Pharisees right between the eyes with their hypocrisy in these things. Outwardly, they practiced obedience to the law, so others would think that they were righteous. But in their hearts, Jesus said that they were full of self-indulgence, uncleanness, and lawlessness. So B, the law actually increases sin. That's what Paul says. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Paul isn't just describing what actually happened, uh, but rather God's intent or His purpose for giving the law. Now, this is, this is not God's only purpose or even the ultimate purpose in that the increase of sin under the law That magnifies the splendor and the power of God's grace. But in in the sense that I'm going to explain, the law actually increases sin. It didn't make the human race as fallen in Adam better. It actually made it worse. Now the verb came in 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 verse 20 points to the, the law's subordinate role in God's economy. The idea is that the law came alongside the existence of human sin Not to provide salvation, but to increase sin in several ways. 
Well, number one, the law increases sin by turning our imputed sin in Adam into actual sins of deliberate disobedience. Now, this is Paul's main point. We see this because he uses the word transgression. He's just used this word to describe Paul or Adam's disobedience in verses 15, 17, and 18. Adam dis- disobeyed an explicit commandment of God. By way of contrast, those living from Adam uh, until Moses, they sinned, but not in the same way that Adam sinned, in that they did not have God's explicit commandments. They certainly violated their consciences. But when God gave the law, the transgression of Adam increased in that now sinners violated God's explicit commandments. And so the law of Moses turned those it addresses into their own Adam. Each sinner, like Adam, now broke an explicit law. Paul says in in Romans 3.20, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Maybe you've had the experience of doing something that you didn't see, you, you didn't, that didn't quite seem right, but you weren't in, uh, aware of any law against it, right? You're doing it, but you just don't, you don't know of a law against it. But then you learned that the law specifically forbids doing what you were doing. Well, if you do it again, the law has increased your sin because you are now deliberately disobeying. Well, number two, the law increases by imputing our guilt to our account. In Romans 4.15, Paul said, where there is no law, there is no violation. That makes sense, doesn't it? You can't violate it if it's not a law. In 5.13, he added, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Same concept. Sin existed before the law in that sinners instinctively knew that what they were doing was wrong. But that sin was not specifically charged to them unless God had expressly forbidden it. So when the law came, the transgression increased by imputing guilt to every sinner. Well, number three, the law increases sin by exposing the utter sinfulness of sin and removing all excuses for disobedience. Now, in chapter 7, verse 13, Paul says that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. It's one thing to do, to, to do something wrong when you're not aware of any law against it. But when the law is posted on the wall or it's verbally explained to you, and then you go and break that law, you then have no excuse. Your deliberate disobedience reveals your sin to be utterly sinful. Well, number four, the law increases sin by stimulating our sinful flesh to disobey it. This is not Paul's primary purpose here in, in, in verse 20, but in light of what he goes on to say in chapter 7, if you're familiar with chapter 7, then you cannot completely, this cannot be completely absent from his thought process. The law, which is holy, combines with our rebellious flesh to um, entice us to sin. Paul says that when the law said, you shall not covet, <laughs> that's what produced in him every sort of coveting. Simply because the law said, do not do it. It's like the little old lady who told the preacher that she wished he'd stop quoting the Ten Commandments uh, every Sunday because he was putting wrong ideas into people's heads. Well, we've all had that experience. I wouldn't have even thought about walking on the grass until the sign says, do not walk on the grass. And you're going, oh, okay. 
So the law does not restrain sin at the heart level. Rather, the law actually increases sin. Now, that raises a question. By, by giving the law, was God causing us to sin? And I hope that the very question causes you to say, God forbid. James tells us that God cannot tempt anyone to sin. Rather, sin comes from our own lusts. But that leads to a third observation about how the law operates. So C, the law is necessary to expose our self-righteousness and to convict us of our sins. Outside of Christ, the tendency of the proud human heart is to simply trust in our own goodness, our own good works. We think that by our own efforts, we can commend ourselves to God. But the problem is, like the Pharisees, we focus on the outside of the cup and we conveniently ignore the inside. The inside of the cup is filthy. And so God graciously sends the law to tell down, to tear down our self-righteousness, our, our outer, 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 outside of the cup, and to convict us of our sin so that we'll be driven to the Savior. Now, Je- Jesus did this with the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. They took pride in never having murdered anybody. But Jesus said, hey, if you've been uh, angry with somebody, then you have, you're guilty of murder. They prided themselves on their morality. But Jesus said, if you've even looked at a woman and lusted after her, then you have committed adultery with her in God's sight. Jesus did the same thing with the rich young ruler. You remember him? He took pride in having kept all the commandments, or so he thought. But by telling him to sell his possessions, and give money to the poor, Jesus showed him that he had not kept the very first commandment, to have no other gods before the living God. His money was his God. So the law comes in not just to increase the transgression, but also to reveal to us how guilty we are of violating God's holy standards. Now this is actually gracious on God's part because in our self-righteousness, we, we don't see our need for the Savior. But when the law exposes our self-righteousness and convicts us of our sin, it drives us to the cross where we find grace. But not only does the law uh, cause sin to increase, also D, the increased sin reigns in death. Now we saw this last week. Paul says that sin led to death and death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's verse 14. And then death reigned through the one, talking about Adam, in verse 17. He repeats it again in verse 21, as sin reigned in death. Two thoughts here. Number one, sin reigns as an evil tyrant in those who are not under Christ's lordship. In other words, sin doesn't just move in as a quiet, polite house guest. It comes in to take over. It's like bringing home a pet tiger kitten. It's all cute and fluffy at first, but you let that thing grow and it's going to to turn into a wild, vicious animal that's going to kill you. Sin doesn't come in to work with you to accomplish your cherished objectives. It does not cooperate with you to help you be happy. It comes in pleasantly enough at first. It seems like a nice little pet, but invariably it grows into an evil tyrant that reigns in death. And if you don't conquer it, It will conquer you and kill you. 
And secondly here, sin does not lead to a better, happier life, but to a temporal and ultimately eternal death. It reigns in death. Sin reigns in the sphere of death, which refers both to physical and finally to spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. Now at first, sin always puts on a positive look. Satan told Eve, you will be like God. The fruit was good for food and a delight to the eyes. Why not give it a try? It's going to bring you everything you have always wanted. How many of you have pursued something more than usual to get that something and only find out, hmm, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. That's, that's the way this happens. That's how sin deceives us. It didn't bring Eve what Satan had promised. It led her and the entire human race into death. Her oldest son murdered his brother out of jealousy. Sin is always ugly, and sin always leads to death. Remember that next time you are tempted. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? Outside of Christ, God's holy law causes sin to increase so that it reigns in death. We call that the bad news, but there is good news. That's number two. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, superabundant grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. Now, Romans 5.21 stands in contrast to 5.12. In 5.12, we see Adam and sin and death. In 5.21, we see the new Adam, Jesus Christ our Lord, righteousness and eternal life. Now, the new factor that makes the difference is superabounding grace. The backdrop of sin displays the glory of God's grace all the more. Frederick Goddard, uh, Goddard was a Swiss theologian in the 19th century, and he points out that Gal Golgotha, where human sin displayed itself as nowhere else, was at the same time the place of the most extraordinary manifestation of divine grace. I read about a gym master who uh, watched a, a rookie salesman fail to make a sale. And with the next customer, the master showed the rookie how to display the gym on a, a background of black velvet so that it would bring out the beauty and the luster of the diamond. Well, even so, the glory of God's manifold grace, it shines even brighter against the blackness of human sin. Need to note three things here. A, God's response to this increased sin, right? The law came and sin increased. God's response is superabounding grace. Now, the Greek verb translated increase and increased, it's used twice in that verse referring to sin. It has the idea of numerical increase. So there was 100, it went to 110, something like that, okay? It just, it increased. But the root of the word translated abounded, that refers to grace now. It means to overflow, to have more than enough. But then Paul adds the Greek word hyper to it, so that it means abounded all the much more. So we can translate where sin simply added up, it increased, grace super abounded. D.G. Barnhouse paraphrased it this way, where sin reached a high water mark, grace completely flooded the earth. James Boyce develops two points regarding God's superabundant grace. First, grace is not withheld because of sin. We've already seen that. Who does, who does He justify? The ungodly. 
And second, God's grace is never reduced because of sin. He points out that we don't usually operate like this. If someone wrongs us, if someone offends us, we withdraw from that person and don't treat them graciously. But God is not like that. Sinners crucified His Son who came to save them. After the resurrection, Jesus easily could have instructed the disciples, hey, y'all get out of this evil city, Jerusalem. It doesn't deserve the gospel. But instead, He told them that repentance for the forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in His name to all nations. And then He added, beginning from Jerusalem. John Bunyan, uh, you're familiar with... uh, um, Okay, the title just went away from me. What is it? Say, y'all, that that was muddled to me. A Pilgrim's Progress, thank you very much. Did you know that he wrote uh, over 50 books? His autobiography he entitled, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He also wrote a little book called, The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. He's probably talking about the ones who were crying. In the beginning of the week, they were saying, Hosanna, right? Hosanna, praise, praise be to to, to Jesus. But come Friday, they're, they're crying, crucify Him, crucify Him. His point was that Jesus Christ would have offered mercy in the first place to the biggest of sinners. That's how just how God is. Well, B, God's grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. Paul doesn't just say that in contrast to sin reigning in death, now grace reigns in life. That, that would be good by itself. He adds that grace would reign through righteous, righteousness to eternal life. Righteousness here refers to the gift of righteousness. That's the justification that all sinners receive when God imputes the righteousness of Christ to them by faith. As sinners who have been declared righteous, we are not made perfectly righteous in actual conduct until we see Jesus and become like Him. We grow in godly behavior, but when we do sin... Uh, John tells us that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So our sins do not cut us off from God because of His superabundant grace that reigns through the righteous standing that we have before God through Christ. Now this grace reigns to eternal life. In verse 17, Paul says that grace causes uh, causes us to reign in life But here he says that God's superabundant grace reigns to eternal life. What this means is that God's grace takes us beyond where Adam was before the fall. He did not possess eternal life before the fall, but in Christ we do. He did not have permanent, perfect righteousness credited to his his account, but in Christ we do. Now, this should give us a solid assurance of salvation. What God began in us when He graciously credited Christ's righteousness to us as ungodly sinners, He will complete unto eternal life. John Piper points out that Romans 5 begins and ends with two infinite realities, eternal life at the end and the hope of the glory of God at the beginning. Our existence needs to be eternal. 
so that we can experience more and more of the infinite glory of God. This also ensures us that heaven is not going to be boring because God's glory is infinitely beautiful and enjoyable. He puts it this way, any amount of time short of eternity would be inadequate for a finite creature to experience the glory of God. It will take forever for us to see all there is to see and admire all there is to admire and enjoy all there is to enjoy of the glory of God. Therefore, God ordains that, that there be eternal life for us. End quote. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. We're finite creatures in ourselves. We die, right? We're going to be given eternal life, but it has a purpose. It's going to take eternity, <laughs> which you never get to the end, right? And that's the nature of eternity, to begin to appreciate the goodness and the glory of God. One last thought, and I can only mention it in passing. See, God's grace is mediated through Jesus Christ. All blessings come to us as believers through Jesus Christ our Lord, who graciously came to this earth and bore the penalty that we deserved on the cross. He mediates God's blessings to us. Now, we, since we don't deserve anything from God's hand except judgment, this, again, is pure grace. And throughout this chapter, Paul has repeated this so that we're not going to miss it. He began by saying, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. He goes on to say, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, through Christ. That's verse 9. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. That's verse 10. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation. That's verse 11. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's verse 17. And here again in verse 21, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All spiritual blessings are to be found in Christ. My question is, do you have Him? If so, His superabundant undeserved favor, it's going to keep flowing and flowing to you unto eternal life. In the center of Bath, England, stands a stone marker in honor of the city's medicinal waters that have blessed so many people over the years. Here's what it says. These healing waters have flowed on from time immemorial. immemorial. Their virtue is unimpaired, their heat undiminished, their volume unabated. They explain the origin, account for the progress, and demand the gratitude of the city of Bath. My goodness, that sounds an awful lot like God's superabundant grace for sinners who have trusted in Jesus Christ. I'm going to read this again, but I'm going to change just a few of the words to fit our context. The grace of God has flowed on from time immemorial. Its virtue, its virtue is unimpaired. Its power undiminished. Its volume unabated. It explains the origin, accounts for the progress, and demands the gratitude of all Christians. I thought that was pretty incredible how well that fit for us who are, who are believers. The gospel of God's grace is decidedly not moralistic the uh, therapeutic deism. 
Rather, through the gospel, God's enemies are reconciled to Him through the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. His superabundant grace reigns in us through Christ's righteousness unto eternal life. A godly pastor was about to die, and he said, I'm gathering all of my prayers, all of my sermons, all my good deeds, and all my evil deeds, and I'm going to throw them overboard and drift to glory on the plank of free grace. That's what it is, y'all. It is free, abundant grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for uh, that grace which is ours simply by believing in Your Son and trusting in Him. Father, forgive us of our sins and and lead us in, in those paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. Father, I ask if there's anybody out here that does not know You as uh, God, does not know Your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day, Father, that You take off the scales from their eyes, the wax out of the ears, and the hardness of their heart away so they can see Jesus for who He really is. Do that work, and we'll give You praise and glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, if you have never come to God through His... And and this is something you need to understand. You can't come to God except through Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus Himself said that. Um, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Me, through Christ. If you've never come to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that today. Uh, Ask God to forgive you of your sins. We've already been through 3.20 through, uh, actually, I'm sorry, 1.18 through 3.20, which tells us that we've all sinned, right? That's Paul's conclusion. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We only deserve one thing now, and that's God's condemnation. But He has done something through Christ that He offers to us. Christ died in our stead on the cross. So you ask, you ask God to forgive your sins, and then you trust Jesus and what He did on the cross 2,000 years ago now, close to it. You trust that. You don't trust yourself. <laughs> like as I said, that's our, normal, that's our modus operandi here in America and in the Western world in general. Uh, it's our good deeds, and we're, we're going to be fine before God. No, you're not. The only, thing that's gonna, the only person that's ever going to stand before God righteously is the one who is asked, God to forgive him of his sins and who has trusted in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, that trust, God actually gives you Christ's righteousness. You give him your sin (laughs) and in exchange, he gives you Christ's righteousness. That's the essence of salvation. If you don't know God in that way, I encourage you to do it. And if you don't know what that means, but you want to, you come talk to me. Okay, Either after the service, during the invitation, I don't care, you come talk to me. That's the most important thing in your life. I assure you, nothing on this earth matters more, particularly not lunch. Second, if you're, if you're a believer, uh, I hope you understand that uh, this really is an eternal gig that we have signed up for. And it's going to be a blessed gig in God's presence, in Jesus' presence. We're never going to get bored because we're going to continually be exposed more to the glory of God. Now, how many of y'all have just, you know, a beautiful sunset, whether you're driving, you're out of the beach or whatever, all of a sudden at right the moment you just go, and it kind of takes your breath. We're going to be going through eternity. Through eternity. It's a good thing. It, it is so much better than anything that we've got going on in this earth, good, particularly bad. Remember, God's in control. Trust Him. 
Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.